Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the Outkick network, this is Outkick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Welcome, fired up and ready to go on this Thursday edition of Outkick 360. I'm Chad Withrow, Paul Kuharski is here. Jonathan Hutton will be back with us next week. We've had a fun week so far, talking about a little bit of everything. We've got new Old Smokey and Yeehaw shirts on today that were provided by the venue. We thank the venue, 6th and Peabody, Very nice. is where we are daily, our downtown studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks to all of you who are listening right now, who are watching us, however you consume. Outkick 360, Paul, we appreciate you. We do. We appreciate all of you. Drink your beer, drink your moonshine, and uh, watch or listen to your uh, favorite show. You ever center anything, Chad? Put it in the middle? been having this conversation oh, this the, week with yeah. putting things in the middle but as somebody here is my enemy I, I in have, terms of centering it's, it's a way, very difficult thing i'm gonna bring in a whole operations team and give a lesson about centering i we, let's not try to center it now though now that we've started he said he said if you sit in the same spot you'll be centered more often it's not me that's not centered it's the screen it's that the i can't screen get centered that, that i've been not, discussing not for days and days i have way bigger issues than if the screen is centered or not right now so we'll we'll move right past that and into what is going to be a terrific show today great guest list uh, on tap for us today throughout the show barrett Salee of cbs sports will join us uh, a little bit later 220 to talk college football tom rinaldi of fox sports will be joining us uh, to talk a little bit of, I mean, what can Tom Rinaldi not talk about, oh, Paul? He's your Columbia classmate. Yeah, He can talk about it all. Memphis head coach Ryan Silverfield will join the show uh, at 3.20. And Rob Bolton of the PGA Tour, uh, who writes for the PGA Tour, will be joining us to talk British Open. We're packed. A little bit later. We got British Open leaderboard we're going to get to. But first, Paul, I did want to update you on my first MLS experience last night. And was there cheering? At Geodis Park. I think drums, the, any drums, any capos, is it called? The drums, capos, everything, it was there. Because oh, apparently about an hour or two before the game. It was detente. Well, an hour or two before the game, and to fill everyone in on, on what happened, the supporter group, this is a big story yesterday that everyone at the park was having a lot of fun with. The supporter group for Nashville SC, for NSC, decided that they were going to have a silent boycott where they weren't going to drum or have their capos or lead cheers for the game because they wanted some demands met from management. In a Things hostage like a, type. Uh, a quarterly meeting with uh, the president of the team, uh, beer discounts at concessions, a heads up on other events at Geodis Park that's non-MLS related, all these list demands. They said that they, would, they needed an answer by Saturday. Before moving forward, well, apparently... Otherwise, the baby would uh, be sacrificed. Apparently, I caught word before kickoff last night that someone from management or the team went and met them in the parking lot and said, just cool it, we'll talk next week. We'll, we'll get a meeting with your oh, representatives next God. week. 
and talk about it. To which I said, that's smart of them because apparently there's over 2,000 season ticket holders that's in this group. But also it would be smart of them not to publicize that and to tell them, now don't go and start talking about how we're meeting all your demands. Just know we'll talk about certain things next week and then cool it and come in and, and watch the game and cheer. They, they watched the game. They cheered. Um, look, it, it's – Geodis Park is incredible. If you're ever in Nashville and you get a chance to go see this venue – uh, it is really breathtaking. I mean, it is the perfect size, right at 30,000, perfect size for what they need for an MLS team. I think it, it, everything in there is very well done. Concessions and the 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 different choices you have with concessions is incredible. I, I was very impressed, Paul. I was in a club level, and the club level access was great. Television's everywhere, bar. They had a buffet for so people you in club inside, level. outside option? I was outside for the entire match, but inside before the match, inside at halftime. Uh, it, was, it was a terrific setup. I, I came away very impressed. I was very impressed with the atmosphere, having never been to an MLS match. I know all of them aren't the same. Um, they announced 27,000 and change in attendance in a 30,000-seat venue. That was generous. I'm sure that's paid attendance. I would say it was about 70% full. Of the 30,000, maybe 70 to 80%. There were a lot of empties that I saw in, di- in different spots, not huge swaths of empty seats. The threat of weather but last you could night see, there? you could see some empty spots. I don't think there was any threat of weather. I think they do worse on weeknights, frankly, because of the parking situation. I think they do better on weekends because people uh, have the time to park you know, three-quarters of a mile or a mile away, which is what I've done the three times I've been there. Well, it's... Um, yeah, the, the, the parking, I'll say this about it too. It had a very much a uh, college football feeling to it because in college football, you don't have big parking lots on campuses a lot of times. So you're parking in odd spots. You're parking in neighborhoods close by. It's always a 20 to 30 minute walk. It was probably a 10 to 15 minute walk. We, I'm not even going to reveal uh, where Davy Park because it's a really good spot and I don't want people flocking to it. But it was still a good 15-minute, I would say, 10, 15-minute walk. What did he spend? 20? But free oh. in a neighborhood. You park in a neighborhood across the street from a house and you know walk down a hill and you th- through a park and then up a ramp and you're there to Geodis Park. So all in all, a great experience. I look forward glad to getting you, back. Glad you liked it. I, I hope we all go together one time. Um, you know, I have very few complaints about it. it it's a little – I think the concessions are good, like, but there's only one ice cream place. And because you can't walk around the whole stadium, if you happen to be sitting on the other side and you want ice cream, you're either spending uh, probably 15 minutes getting to and from ice cream, better not never minding the time in line, or you're going without ice cream. Or you're buying a ticket based on where the ice cream place is. That's the one thing about only being able to walk a U around the stadium as opposed to being able to walk all the way around the stadium, which I object to. Yeah. It's fine if you want that one side to be exclusively for premier seat ticket holders, but then I would open the stadium behind it where you could also walk behind while being, quote-unquote, inside, even if it's outside. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's my one objection to the layout. I was but it's Im- a great building. I was impressed with the amount of Seattle fans that were there in the supporters section. Oh, they'll travel. At the, at the, at the match. And uh, Nashville SC, NSC won 1-0 last night. Good goal. And uh, it was a great goal. It, it was one. You know how, how I rate a great goal in soccer? One that I can see coming. It was one that was kind of a little breakaway. I'm like, there it is. Pass is right there. Go, go. And banged it home. So it was, uh, it was fun. 
one nil, one nil game. I know that the uh, column was telling us it helped Nashville a lot in the standings. But anyway, if you're in Nashville, Geodis Park, highly recommend it. I don't highly recommend trying to send a hostage letter to have your demands met if you're a supporter group of any team. Well, I'm sorry but it didn't it, explode it into out. a bigger situation just for the drama it would have lent us and lent you being at the game last night. But I'm glad you had a good experience. That, that fits what everybody said and what I experienced in my three times. And I look forward to going more. And again, I've considered season tickets because it knocks the price down so much. And I think you can move them at cost when you don't go. Yeah, and I, there's season tickets available for like $400 that you can get for the entire season yeah, in different spots. That, so, yeah, yeah, so that's not bad at all. Um, not a lot of drama with Tiger Woods right now at the British Open, unfortunately. Heading the direction I predicted. A rough, rough start uh, to the British Open, which may be half of his time in Scotland if this continues because he is well below the cut line right now. Tiger Woods, six over par on the day. He's... Uh, 11 spots. Yes, 11 spots from the bottom right now. Uh, so six over for the day for Tiger Woods. Sorry, five over for Tiger Woods on the day. Uh, and he is still on the course right now, actually. Oh, I thought he was done. He so is that's through, my bad. He is through 14 right now. So maybe he can, you know, shave a couple strokes off of that in these last few holes. The leader in Scotland at St. Andrews is Cameron Young, the American, eight under par. Some great scores on the course today. Rory McElroy. At six under par, he is the betting favorite at FanDuel coming into the tournament. Cameron Smith, another Cameron, uh, but That's not my American. Guy, but That's I didn't bet guy. on him. Five under par also. Barkley Brown, the Brit, four under par. Kurt Kitayama is at four under. Lee Westwood, four under. Big group at four under. Brad Kennedy, Victor Hovland, Taylor Gooch, Dustin Johnson, Scotty Scheffler at four under par. So good start so far to the British Open. I was watching some of the coverage. I know NBC has the coverage, and it's on USA right now. I woke up early this morning and turned it on. There's been a lot of complaints about the length of commercial times and how many commercials they go to at this event. And Colin was telling us before the show started also that apparently Bryson DeChambeau, who's I think three under, who had a really good round, um, you know, not far off the lead right now, they didn't show one shot of his throughout the entire tournament. So there is your live tour payback, possibly from NBC and PGA with their broadcast partners. Well, you mentioned that somebody else at the top of the leaderboard there. I wonder uh, if he also was shunned by TV. Uh, and I have to look Dustin back. Johnson? Uh, well, Dustin Johnson. Dustin Johnson's at four under, and he's done for the day. And Gooch, uh, right, is, uh, is a live guy yep. at four under. Tied four for under. Fourth. So, I mean, uh, you know, they, if there are enough guys up there, they're not going to have much of a choice. Yeah, I mean, the live guys, especially as it continues, you're, you're right, Paul, but Taylor Gooch, Dustin Johnson, both at four under, Bryson DeChambeau at three under par. I'm trying to find the next live guy that's on the list. But, I mean, they're, those guys are doing well to start the tournament. Lee Westwood, oh, yeah, Lee Westwood also, there you go, is part of the live tour. I always think of it in terms of the Americans that are on the live tour and not international players, but Lee Westwood, four under par also, and done with his round. So that's going to be a story to watch, how they focus on the live players throughout this tournament. I'm with you, Paul. I feel like you have to show them, right? I mean, if, if you get into Saturday 
and they're in contention, how yeah, do you just I mean, ignore you, a player that's have, in contention? You don't have any choice. Especially now, if it's a big if, name. If you want to discuss the story a little bit, as they've done um, on some PGA events, certainly the first PGA event, the RBC, I think, was the first PGA event after the first live uh, tournament or concurrent with the first live tournament. Um, I think, what network is that? I think it was CBS handled it appropriately and well, I, I think we all agreed. But uh, you can't pretend nothing's going on, and you can't ignore uh, the people who are involved in it by any means. It's, um, it's interesting to me how the narrative now has shifted from the Saudis are bad people, don't do business with them, to these people are harming golf. They're hurting the game of golf. They're pretending to try to help the game of golf, and in fact, they're hurting the game of golf. That seems to be a popular sentiment, even with the decision not to invite Greg Norman to the Champions Dinner or to any of the festivities was, hey, th th these this is a group out to harm the sport and not help it, so we're not going to help them. Mickelson, by the way, said that um, whoever the, the head guy from from uh, St. Andrews uh, or, or the British Open called uh, him and said, you know, hey, if you'd like to come to the dinner, we're not telling you you can't come to the dinner. But we think it'd be better if, if you weren't there, frankly. Uh, 150th anniversary, you know, uh, distraction, all of that. And that they mutually agreed that it'd be better for him not to be there, and he chose not to go. So it wasn't as dramatic a uh, you're not welcome here as Greg Norman got. So, I, so it's diplomatic. Yeah. It, well, speaking of diplomatic, I, someone read Tiger Woods' quotes to Phil Mickelson. In a question, he's entitled to his. He opinion. said, I, "He said I respect his opinion. I respect him a lot. I respect." His yeah, that opinion. was basically the whole quote. Was to sum it up, I, I respect his opinion. I respect Tiger's opinion, and then kind of moved on and, and wouldn't comment on it, which minimized it. Probably the right way to handle yeah. it. I Diffused mean, he, it. he knows how he's viewed right now, so you know, no use in defending it. I guess if you if you took the money, uh, he's spoken. Around. He's he said his piece. So yeah. how much does he want to get into a tennis match and volley? Yeah, back and point. forth. Good point. Uh, Barrett Salee, one of the best to cover the sport of college football with CBS Sports. Excited to have him on. We're going to talk football with him. He's been at Big 12 Media Days. We can talk about everything going on with Brent Yormark and, and what the, he's trying to do with that conference. Conference expansion, SEC. We'll get into all of it when we come back with Barrett Salee. That's next. This is Outkick 360. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer. With over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros, Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, 
Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. We are back on OutKick 360 across the OutKick network. I'm Chad Withrow. Paul Koharski is here. Jonathan Hutton will be back on Monday. One of the very best to cover the sport of college football is Barrett Salee. He is kind enough to join us again. So much to talk about in the world of college football. It's hard to know where to start. Uh, seems to be news every single day about conference realignment, statements made by commissioners, and we have Barrett on to talk about all those things. Barrett, how are you, man? appreciate you doing this. I'm great, guys. Just uh, waiting for the next shoe to drop. You know what? It, I joked about this on SiriusXM uh, on Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, I should say. We almost need the football season to actually get here to get a break from all this stuff and provide a little bit of structure. Because I don't know about you guys, but I get that screen report, uh, screen time report on Sundays on, from my phone from Apple. And the last couple of weeks, it's just been embarrassing how much time I've spent on the phone waiting for whatever happens in the world of realignment. It is amazing, Barrett, that when you're watching a game on a Saturday, it, it just looks like college football. And everything else around the sport, all offseason sort of goes away. And you say, well, there's all these different factors around the sport, but this still looks the same. And I still like this product and I like watching it. Things are definitely not the same for the Big 12. I know this is a broad question, but... I. I'm curious to know, because you were you were there, a part of it, what is the vibe around Big 12 media days with everything taking place around the sport, including them having a new commissioner? Uh, well, I was not there, but, you know, I, I, I've talked to a bunch of folks and I watched the entire thing. And to me, it felt like just coming through that there was optimism from, like, the administrative side. I think Brett Yormark is, is a perfect – uh, for a perfect commissioner for that conference because he brings in the business side from his time at uh, at Jay Z's uh, at Jay Z's agency, and I think for for him to come out and say they're open for business, and and he explained further that it, it means more than just expansion. It means open for every single possible change or addition or tweak to the college athletics model, and I think for for him to come and say that after Bob Bowlesby's career had been so up and down and you never knew which way, which way he was going. Um, you know, that, that to me shows that he's, he's got a, a mindset that is, I think needed, especially for a conference like the big 12, um, you know, in this day and age where instead of being the hunted, which they have been obviously in the past multiple times, uh, they can go out and be the hunter and perhaps reestablish themselves as one of the powerful, one of the most powerful conferences uh, in all of college athletics. I know your colleague Dennis Dodd reported that there are four Pac-12 schools that were into preliminary discussions or had been reached out to or reached out to the Big 12 about joining the Big 12. Just your opinion, if you're a Pac-12 school right now, would you make that move at this moment if the Big 12 could make way for you or do you sit back and wait to see where the dominoes fall with everything else. No, I make that move right now. 
Uh, I know everyone's going to sit there and wait around for Notre Dame, Washington and Oregon specifically. You might be waiting a long time. And here's the thing. If you can convince or if you're let's just say you're Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado and the Arizona schools, right? Those six teams go into the Big 12 would basically put a giant X across the entire country of Big 12 membership from UCF when they join all the way to Washington and then from the Arizona schools all the way to West Virginia and Cincinnati. That's a really solid conference. It's not the Big 10. It's not the SEC, but it's better than what they have now. And in the, the way the landscape, I think, will evolve is that we're going to get something we've all talked about for a very long time, and that's four super conferences, uh, 16 teams, 18 teams, 20 teams. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But if you're talking about a situation where the Big 12 is the aggressor, they go out and get those Pac-12 teams, which I think certainly would benefit that because it would solve their biggest issue, and that's time zone. That's been the biggest problem for the Pac-12, that and the TV deal. Um, and it solves one of those. And then on top of that, you can negotiate a TV deal with a more nationwide conference, the most nationwide conference uh, in, in, the, in the country, including what the Big Ten is doing with UCLA and USC. So if you're talking about the Pac-12, you need to bail, especially if the Big 12 comes calling. Because and, and maybe look, maybe you put in some different outs if you're the Big 12 and a Washington and Oregon to say, all right, look, if you want to leave for the Big Ten and they offer you, fine. You know, the exit fee's a little smaller. If that's what it takes to get them there, do it because it is a it would be mutually beneficial for the Big 12 and any of those Pac-12 schools to create a conference that is not only sustainable, but I think can be a, a power. So, you know, I think a lot of folks, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of folks have said this is the death of college football and, um, you know, all hell is going to break loose and there's going to be a bunch of different dominoes to, that fall. Uh, OK, maybe, you know, maybe that's what happens. But for me, I think it's going to be a little less, you know, anticlimactic, so to speak. I think you're going to see, you know, the evolution of, of four super conferences and the Pac-12 gets poached and those teams that that Dennis mentioned and, and others have mentioned as possibilities for the Big 12. Uh, can, will, and should jump, and we're going to have a much more streamlined sport, which is good for everybody. I'm confused about how the Big 12 is is maybe looking at the four that we've heard mentioned, and and Oregon isn't a hotter commodity. It's it's the flashiest, most colorful school in terms of branding. It's been in the top ten and in the poll more than any Big Ten school, including USC, except for Ohio State. What, what's it missing in terms of being a commodity one of these conferences would want? Well, I think Oregon has dug its heels in for the Big Ten. And, you know, obviously things are fluid. So um, they might come off of that relatively easy. And, and obviously Phil Knight, um, you know, has a lot of power, although I, I think that's a little overstated because he's a huge donor to Stanford as well. Um, you know, and he's got shareholders to, to look out for. It's not his responsibility to to be the one who you know holds nike or holds conferences hostages over nike i mean that's um i think oregon to me it's just the they are so dedicated to the big 10 they they that's their only goal they have laser vision on that um and that's why i think you might not have seen them mentioned publicly uh, from what i've heard they've come off of that a little bit and that they would be open for a wide variety of different scenarios and they are fly. I mean, think about this, you know, we all talk about how the ACC might get poached. And I think that's a little bit overstated, but um, you know, what is Oregon? Oregon's basically Clemson before Clemson, right? Like Clemson went on this run. 
they had more success than Oregon. But you're talking about Oregon that in 09 or when Dennis Dixon got hurt was going to make the BCS championship game. Most likely they went to the BCS championship game, lost to Auburn. They went to three straight BCS games. They went to the first playoff, first national championship. I mean, you're talking about a team that is from a lesser conference like Clemson go out there and have sustained success. Not to the level of Clemson, but to the level of being relevant and lifting the the the, the entire conference wherever they may be. So, um, you know, I think they'll be fine. Oregon's not going to be one of those left out. Um, they just might have to make a difficult decision and make a quick decision. Um, you know, while while Notre Dame sits around and twiddles its thumbs. I think a lot of people are like me, and that the downside of of some of this realignment is is the loss of these rivalries. Uh, who wouldn't want to see mm. Oklahoma continue to play? Oklahoma State. So Brent Venables says, hey, we want Bedlam to continue. But Gundy says Bedlam's history. Uh, Bedlam's uh, is, is not going to be Bedlam when they leave, they leave uh, the conference. So uh, you hold out any hope that something like that can continue to exist or might go away for a few years and then the hard feelings go away and everybody realizes, hey, we need this game and it's got to be an out-of-conference game for both schools? Or are we sacrificing something important like that and, and we get to see uh, uh, Oklahoma play schools like uh, Missouri that it doesn't have much of a history with instead? I think you're going to see them go away for a little while. And, and that really is only because you need to see the dust settles. I don't think that's going to be like the Texas A&M-Texas drama for the last decade where they all just kind of point at each other and, and say they're the bad guy. I think eventually cooler heads will prevail. Brent Venables and Mike Gundy, um, you know, they don't make those decisions. So I'm sure Mike Gundy's pretty frustrated and pretty angry at Oklahoma for leaving for the SEC because it hurts his team. It hurts his conference. It hurts his bottom line. Um, you know, so in the end, yeah, I think you're going to see those come back. You know, the SEC, uh, the way the, the schedule is formatted, um, you know, it, it might make that easier or harder depending on, you know, which way they go. So if it's a one seven format and there's a, you know, eight, a four out of conference games. Yeah. I mean, having Bedlam every year is no problem. We see that with the SEC and ACC rivalries all the time. Um, you know, so I think because you have to sort of weave through all of the, the different aspects of this, um, you know, let the dust settle with realignment and with NIL and TV contracts and all that other stuff, you might see it go away for a little while in the end. I think it'll come back. Um, you know, I don't think there's the pettiness there. Uh, as there is with Texas A&M and Texas. Uh, they still don't like each other. I don't think there's any wrong, any, any, uh, any a doubt about that. But I do think that that you will have those rivalries and, and a lot of others still continue, even if it's not on an annual basis or if it just goes on a little bit of a, a couple couple year height. It's kind of like um, you know the backyard brawl. Uh, it's It was gone for a little while, probably longer than a lot of people expected, but it's back this year. Uh, the Holy War, Utah and BYU, uh, was gone for a couple of years, but it's back. So I think you're going to see a situation kind of like that. Barrett Salee is a college football analyst with CBS Sports, and he is joining us here on Outkick 360. Let's talk SEC. SEC Media Days next week, Barrett. And I'm fascinated to see the approach of Brian Harson to SEC mm -hmm. Media Days. Given this offseason, given where Auburn is in recruiting right now, I, I just saw, I think, four commitments in the 2023 class with all the uncertainty around the coaching situation at Auburn. Uh, what do you think of Brian Harson going into this SEC media days? And what do you make of Auburn as a program right now, given the failed coup uh, of their head coach where he's still there? Yeah. You know, I think Auburn or Harson really has addressed it well with the locals. 
but like regional folks and national folks really haven't had a chance to dig deep uh, into what happened. So he's going to answer it. He's going to answer it with a canned answer. I think Brian is actually a, a pretty forthcoming dude. I, I think he's uh, going to be pretty darn honest with, with how he addresses this. And I think you're going to see a lot of folks read between the lines, to try to figure out, okay, you know, does it mean that he's conceded some power? Does it mean that, um, you know, he's dug his heels in? Does it mean that he's now become a puppet for the boosters there? Um, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of folks read between the lines, but I think Brian, you know, he's not going to shy away from it. He He's answered it pretty well with the local reporters during spring practice, and I think he'll do the same. Um, as far as Auburn, the program, I mean, it's just uniquely Auburn, right? Like, this is how they operate. The You know, the, there are so many chefs in the kitchen that are so accustomed to having more power than a lot of other pro, uh, boosters and other programs, and they don't want to give that away. And Brian Harson took it away from him last year, and it pissed him off. And then he went six and seven, and <laughs> they found their chance, and they they – they pounced on it. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a dysfunctional program, probably the most dysfunctional program in the sec, uh, but it wins, you know, that's the thing with, with Auburn is from the outside. And I can say this as an insider too, because I went to Auburn, worked there, grew up an Auburn fan, all that stuff. Um, they, the people that have their hand in the cookie jar feel like it works because it does. And it has, right. They won a national championship. They went to, um, they they uh, almost went to the college football playoff. They went to another national championship game. They went undefeated in 2004. Like that way works as crazy and stupid and dysfunctional as we all make it out to be. The, the boosters and the decision makers have had success doing it that way. So I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that they um, feel like it should be changed. And so because of that, it puts Harson in a really tough spot. He's got to win. But more importantly, he's got to play the political game a whole lot more than he did last year. And we'll see if he does. I think, like I said, getting back to media days, uh, you're going to have a lot of reading between the lines to find out if he's actually playing that game. Florida's another one that's in an interesting spot right now, Barrett, because it, you know they, they're two years removed from being in the SEC championship game. And then in the middle of the next season, Dan Mullen's getting fired uh, after going to the SEC championship. And now you've got some groaning going on in the fan base about what's been kind of a slow start. It's starting to pick up a little bit now, but in recruiting and with everything else this offseason with Billy Napier, uh, when you look at their roster right now, what they have coming back, and you you gauge that with the expectations of Florida fans in football, which is to compete for the SEC, compete for national championships every year is what they want. Where do you think Florida is right now going into this season, and what is realistic for the Gators? You know, I think for Florida, seven and five, eight and four is realistic. You know, I think with Billy, the the development wasn't there. The recruiting wasn't there. And the angst and frustration, I think, uh, until this hot run, which I think is seven or eight players since the start of July, uh, have committed. Um, until that, recruiting was a problem. And that was like the biggest selling point for Billy Napier and the biggest reason why Dan Mullen was fired. So I think if it wasn't that, then maybe – um, the frustration wouldn't have come so quickly, but uh, it did. And for, for good reason, because this was not supposed to happen. And to Billy's credit, he's, he's fixed this. The collective, I think, wasn't necessarily operating in the way that it was initially intended. It seems like they fixed that too. So, you know, I think for Florida, it's just about roster, uh, roster uh, depth and roster uh, management. He, I don't think he hit the transfer portal market maybe as well as he probably could have, although he did 
uh, do a pretty good job pulling guys up from the from the group of five ranks, specifically his guys at Louisiana. But you know, it's going to take some time. You know, it's just it's it's hard at Florida to compete with a team like Georgia when you have a development problem, you have a roster problem, you have a culture of competition problem, and you have a regime change. So it's just it's not going to come overnight. It might not even come in year one or year two uh, because you know as, as much as you know, a lot of teams hit the transfer portal. You're still not going to see a ton of superstars in that thing. You might see a Caleb Williams every once in a while, Jalen Hurts, whatever. But, um, you know, Florida just doesn't have those guys right now. So it's going to be a slower build. Uh, but I think this year they're competitive enough if Anthony Richardson can at least come through with, you know, a, a little, at least match the hype at times. Then I think they'll be, I think the, from the running back situation is very interesting because they still have four or five guys after a couple transfers that, um, that I think can can make that offense pretty darn salty, especially if they use Anthony Richardson on the ground. So I think they'll be all right. It's just, uh, look, I get the frustration. I think it's deserved because, again, like I said, you know, Billy Napier got that job because he's an elite recruiter. Now, he became a great head coach at Louisiana, three 10-win seasons in four, in four years, but his bread and butter has always been recruiting, and that was what Florida needed, and he didn't get it up until about uh, two weeks ago. I think all of us have come to terms with geography not being much of a factor in the in conference alignments anymore. I was reading this week, you know, some West Virginia fans saying, you know, to them, Pitt and Penn State and Virginia Tech are still the places that they care about and have a passion mm -hmm. against. And they don't they don't see those teams and they don't feel any real rivalry with their new conference rivals. And I, I'm feeling the same way, like, for the Big Ten trade-off. Sure, you get USC against Penn State and Michigan and Ohio State, and those are going to be great. But games against Indiana and, and Minnesota and Northwestern are going to feel really meaningless on a lot of Saturdays. So do you think that's kind of a worthwhile trade-off, or do you think that's kind of going down a road that's going to water down the sport in a way that's not helpful? Well, it's a worthwhile trade-off because you're making two and a half times the amount of money that you're making in the Pac-12. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, I, I get it, and I agree with you. It's it's not going to be that exciting to see UCLA versus Indiana uh, on a, you know, at noon on a on a Saturday uh, on the Big Ten Network. No one's going to care. But, uh, you know, I think for it does benefit both conferences, right, because the Big Ten teams can now go to California and, and maybe – have a little bit more of a recruiting effort than they have in years past. And, you know, the Pac-12 teams, UCLA and USC, they solved their television uh, time uh, uh, time zone problem, which is the biggest problem they have. So, you know, it, geography doesn't matter for football, you know, it, they don't, except for maybe the, the equipment truck drivers, I feel bad for those guys. But, you know, for other sports, for midweek baseball games, for gymnastics meets, for track meets, for, you know, equestrian, all that stuff, that's a problem. And that's why I'm interested to see what happens, you know, once this whole thing goes down is, does does college football break away and just become the revenue source for entire athletic departments? Does it basically become semi-pro ball affiliated with universities um, rather than governed by the same body that governs the other um, the other sports? So I think that'll be what happens, and I think that'll make things a lot easier um, because you know you'll you'll have sort of a, a, a huge differentiation between the two, and you know if you got to travel across the country and, and be a uh, a remote student and use airplane Wi-Fi. Okay. You know, we've all airplane Wi-Fi is maybe not as reliable as home Wi-Fi, but I think we've all sort of uh, become, you know, pretty adept at, at learning and working and, and doing everything remotely. 
Barrett, I think it's an interesting battle for second place in both divisions in the SEC this year. When you throw in Tennessee, Florida, Kentucky, South Carolina into that mix in the East, and then a team like Arkansas. And I want to ask this, and I'm not discounting Kentucky and what Mark Stoops has done, but specifically South Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas from an upward mobility standpoint, they've got a lot of positive momentum right now going into this season and throughout this offseason. Tennessee's the number one recruiting class in the SEC right now, for example. Um, Who are you buying? I'm not saying this is a prediction of yours, but most likely to get to Atlanta in an SEC championship in the next three, four, five years between South Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas, who would you buy as the most likely to take the biggest leap forward and actually win a division at some point? He's fishing. Yeah, I'd say Tennessee is probably the most likely out of those three. Um, a, because Arkansas has got uh, a much more difficult hill to climb in the SEC West, and we'll see what happens when Texas and Oklahoma get in, how they operate. Uh, I would assume it means no divisions. Um, but, um, you know, South Carolina, to me, you know, I, I love Shane Beamer. You're not going to get the talent. Um, and Tennessee, with the way the fan base and the decision makers and the boosters have organized a collective and, and really taken advantage of NIL, is, is going to restock that roster pretty quickly. And on top of that, I mean, look, you saw Josh Heupel, you know, establish that identity last year. They're the fastest team in the country in terms of play, uh, you know, of, of offensive plays. So um, that is, that's something that gives them an advantage. It allows them to dictate the tempo of most games. And look, I mean, Georgia's going to be the most talented team in the East. It might be the most talented team in the SEC or even the country, you know, all, pretty much all the time. But can Tennessee get to a point where, it's capable of, of upsetting Georgia and then not suffering some bizarre letdown or two throughout the course of the season. Yeah. I think it can get there. Um, so, you know, if I had to pick one of those three, it, it would be Tennessee, but uh, I don't think any of them are happening anytime soon with the way Alabama and Georgia have recruited and the success they've had. I would totally agree with, with all of those points, especially about Alabama and Georgia right now looking uh, invincible <laughs> Barrett Salee, you can read his work at cbssports.com, CBS Sports College football analyst, at Barrett Salee on Twitter. Barrett, thank you so much, man. Always fun talking some football with you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. So Barrett Salee is also a huge Atlanta Braves fan, and we've got more news involving the Freddie Freeman saga with his agent, Casey Close. Ooh. Casey Close is suing Doug Gottlieb for the report that he did not give all the information to Freddie Freeman. So... We're going to discuss when we come back. This is uh, just a, another part of this story and saga continues to change and evolve as we move forward, and it will not go away. We'll discuss when we come back. It's Outkick 360. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Outkick 360 across the Outkick Network. I'm Chad Withrow. John, uh, Jonathan Hutton, I should say, is not here this week. Paul Koharski is. 
Thank you. And we are getting you through this Thursday. So more news coming out of the saga involving Freddie Freeman and him firing his agent, Casey Close. If you recall, he fires his agent because there's this tearful return to Atlanta. And in that weekend, apparently he catches word that his agent wasn't being completely honest with him, allegedly, about the Braves' final offer, which led to Freddie Freeman eventually signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers, and he fires his agent, Casey Close, over that. This is all from a report from Doug Gottlieb. And Doug Gottlieb, uh, who is a Fox Sports Radio host, the tweet from Doug Gottlieb that started all this was, Casey Close never told Freddie Freeman about the Braves' final offer. That is why Freeman fired him. This is after the Freeman firing. He found out in Atlanta this weekend. It isn't that rare to have happen in Major League Baseball, but it happened. Close knew Freddie would have taken the Atlanta deal. So Jeff Passan from ESPN is now reporting that because of that report, agent Casey Close has sued radio host Doug Gottlieb for libel, alleging in a complaint that Gottlieb defamed him, defamed him and Excel Sports Management in a tweet regarding the contract negotiations of Dodgers star Freddie Freeman. This according to court documents obtained by ESPN. Paul, the burden of proof when it comes to media members on something like this is heavy. He would to have prove to prove intent. that Gottlieb intentionally lied. passed along. Yeah, yeah. knowingly lie. Um, I, I don't know why Gottlieb would have done that uh, or what his motives would be there. It's very, very difficult to prove. And I think really uh, filing the suit is, is the thing here, not winning the suit, right? He's making a statement by going after him at all. Um, and so it didn't Freeman sue close or he just fired him. I think he fired no, he, him and maybe sued. him. I don't think so. I, I think Freddie Freeman has fired him. Now, Casey close also submitted some sort of complaint to major league baseball against the Braves for spreading false information yes. or something with that about whatever right, that's what said that they misrepresented the negotiations to his client when he met with them or saw people with the Braves on that trip. And as Andrew Brandt told us, uh, Casey Close is a you know, supremely reputable agent, repped Derek Jeter, um, and has a, a big stable, has and has had a big stable of, of big-time clients. So this is quite the um, soap opera involving very big names and a lot of hurt feelings. You know how this all could have been avoided is if Freddie Freeman won the big bait. Well, if, if Freddie Freeman had been it, decisive and followed advice from Larry. Yes, followed advice from, from Chipper Jones on it and, and probably got steered in the wrong direction by his agent. But you're right, it, the, the agent works for Freddie Freeman. If he really wanted to sign with the Braves, he could have signed with the Braves, gave him that final offer, all-star break of last year. And he had plenty of time to sign that, that extension if he wanted to. Now, Gottlieb's tweet is way more definitive than I remembered. I will say, there's a lot of ways you could have Couch, phrased this and said, you know, Freddie Freeman believes Casey Close didn't give him the Braves' final offer. That's why he fired him today. But he says, he says Casey Close never told Freddie Freeman about the Braves' final offer. That is why Freeman fired him. He found out in Atlanta this weekend. It isn't that rare to have happened in Major League Baseball, but it happened. Close knew Freddie would have taken the Atlanta deal. 
Also, I just don't buy that it's it's not that rare. Yeah, I don't buy that either. I think that's a wild statement to make that this isn't that rare in Major League Baseball that an agent wouldn't give his client a final offer from a team. And after talking to Brandt about it, I don't I don't believe that Close didn't tell him the final offer. I believe that Close uh, painted it in a uh, less friendly light than was accurate. Well, but I mean, yeah, that that could be done, but that that's a different statement. Did not tell him about the final but offer. But I think that is sta- what my my statement would get him off the hook for libel. Yeah, but again, you've got to prove that Doug Gottlieb knew it was false and reported it anyway. And Doug Gottlieb's that's very hard source here, if we want to play the sourcing game, is very likely either a close friend of Freeman's or an Atlanta Braves executive that was involved in this that spoke to Freeman during that visit by the Dodgers to Atlanta. Could it be another agent that caught wind of this that maybe wants to hire Freddie Freeman? I would put that third. Or hurt Casey Close. On my speculative list, I would put that third. Because... This is this would directly hurt Casey Close's business, this report, obviously, yes. if true. So it could be someone out to get him, so a rival of him. I, I, I don't know. That was quick it's to a get to story. an That would be quick, I think, in the gossip circles to get to that agent because it happened very quickly after that series. It's a crazy story, and people leave teams all the time after many years of those teams. Albert Pujols is a legend in St. Louis and left for you know a decade to go to the Angels. I mean, these things happen. It's just such a strange story because of the level of emotion from Freddie Freeman about all this. Now, it's, it helps that he's playing well for the Dodgers. It'd be a much bigger story, quite honestly, if he was terrible this year and had all that he's emotion. He's playing well for the Dodgers despite uh, uh, we've concluded not wanting to be there. Uh, so it's impressive. I mean, I heard... Because uh, I think he goes to bed every night with a Braves pillow. I heard... Um, Dave Roberts on 94.9 The Fan, our Nashville affiliate, on the way in today on Dan Patrick. And he was talking about that weekend. Dan, he said, okay, we've, we're three minutes in, so I'm going to ask you about it, the, the Freddie Freeman situation. And, I mean, he, he played it off like, yeah, everybody understood. No one was mad about it. It was a wild weekend. He was very emotional. I just kind of played the conduit between our team trying to beat the Atlanta Braves and his emotion and everything else. But it's got, I, I keep going back to it's got to be weird if you're a Dodger. If you're with that organization, it's got to be strange. I think absolutely. I mean, uh, it's also uh, a little bit unfortunate in the timing that it happened so late into the season, right? It, you're, yeah. you're that far into your first season being with the Dodgers and you're getting your ring and going through all of that stuff. Paul, excited about our next guest, your buddy, Tom Rinaldi. Tom Rinaldi. Join us. He didn't know who Johnny Jaha was and it cost him prepare, first go round. Prepare to cry like Freddie Freeman when Tom Rinaldi speaks to us when we come back. This is Outkick 360.